Welcome, proud members of the present, to another episode of the Primalosophy Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Horderbaum, and this episode is brought to you by UFF, the Firefighter Wellness Program on a mission to make the best job in the world a healthier one. Go to primalosophy.com slash UFF to get started. My guest on the podcast today is Pete Molinari. He's a vintage modern soul. He's an acclaimed singer, songwriter, playwright, and novelist from the UK. He's currently based in LA and recently released his fifth studio album titled Just Like Achilles with all original compositions. Preceding the album release, the two singles Steal the Night and Waiting for a Train were released to critical acclaim. Pete co-directed both music videos with guest appearances from friends Evan Rachel Wood and Jacob Dylan. Pete, thank you so much for taking the time to be on my podcast today. Oh man, it's a pleasure. I'm glad to glad to be involved, and uh, yeah, thanks for thanks for having me. A powerful quote from you in regards to growing up in England with a big family of Mediterraneans. You said, "I wasn't spoiled materially, but I was fortunate to be spoiled with the arts." Can you please say more on this? Yeah, I, I use the word spoiled because I guess you know I grew up in a family of of. Um, you know, five, I have five brothers and three sisters, you know, a, a big group of us, like family of nine. And my dad is from Egypt and my mother's from Malta and my surname Molinari is Italian. So I had some Italian in there too. So it's very much a, a Mediterranean household. So, you know, in the household, in the front, going through the front door, everything was pretty much mediterranean you know all my dad's influences of uh his greek friends or his italian friends or you know him growing up in alexandria he could speak six or seven languages very well mm. um so uh you know my mom being from malta so so within within that you know that household there was a mix of cultures and kind of like um learning all sorts of stuff that i probably probably wouldn't have learned and then obviously Outside of the house, I was pretty much in England. So I always saw it that way. It was like, what? You know, inside the house, I'm in like Italy or Greece or whatever. And, you know, going to school, I'm in England and it's Shakespeare. And it's, you know, so it's kind of like a mix of both worlds, which was amazing. And then, you know, it was kind of like growing up with my mum and dad. The first music I heard really was classical and uh, Maria Carlos and kind of like my dad's obsession with opera and all of that kind of stuff. And then obviously going to school was a, was mixing with English friends and, you know, finding out about, you know, Britpop and all of the Beatles and all of that kind of stuff. So it's kind of, uh, I, I think what I mean by spoiled was I never really, coming from a big family, I never really got the guitar lessons. I never got the piano lessons. I never really got the, the school holiday that other kids got. Uh, but I always, you know, I think the arts was something that, you know, I had no choice in it. Was just like it was all art at home. It was all about like you know Mozart, and Beethoven, and opera, and, and jazz, and this, that, and the other. And you know, surrounded by books of the Renaissance, and always. So I, I, I guess I was just spoilt in a way with the arts, and constantly kind of being talked to about painters and musicians and sculptors and um and it just kind of like uh had a really deep impression on me sounds like you were raised right and i understand one of your brothers had a great collection of rock records that you would listen to and watch spin around on the record player and you said rock and roll feels like an escape what do you think young pete was trying to escape from back then i think i had, might have had a bit of that 
middle child syndrome. I don't know. I was kind of like my my older brothers and sisters, you know, pretty much went to school, left school, got a job, did what they needed to do. You know, for my, for my parents, I was the kind of one that came along and was like, I want to go to art school and I want to paint and I want to, you know, I want to like... I want to try this and I want to try that. And I, I guess for them, it was like, who's this kid, you know? Um, so uh, I think, um, I think I just, you know, it was, it was different for me because I, like I said, I use the word lucky and spoiled in a way because, you know, it's one thing being able to sing or discovering that you might be able to write a song or a poem or something, or you might be good at, in literature in some way, or you might have a talent for the guitar. But, you know, it's also our choices, you know, and our talent, I think, is somewhat in our choices. And I think I was just in the right environment to be able to thrive because as my brothers and sisters were playing football or doing whatever I was kind of pretty much always in a book always a sketch pad always just um trying to be creative even if it was with sticks and stones at the time but um my again I was fortunate that I had uh, two older brothers and some you know my mum's brothers a couple of uncles that had you know they had records of the Beatles and the Stones and the Kinks and Little Richard and Buddy Holly and and Ray Charles and you know all of this stuff Hank Williams records one of them was really into country it was kind of like you know I discovered I just when I discovered like rock and roll music like anyone much later than probably everyone else because I was kind of listening to what my parents were had on at the time it was it, it did feel like freedom you know and I think I think probably many would describe it that way not just learning the guitar it's like when you kind of hear those opening notes to a Buddy Holly song or to a, to a, a Little Richard song or something. It's, it's still, even now, like I can't imagine what it might have been like in the 50s or the 60s, but I guess to kids then, it, it must have felt like busting out of prison uh, or it must have felt like very rebellious in a way. But I, I, I still feel a sense, of, um, a sense of just fun, you know. I mean, classical something else... Uh, Opera is something that greatly interests me because I love plays and I love stories and I love, you know, I love what Mozart did with those things, with comedy and all that stuff. But, um, you know, just a simple two-minute song from, uh, from the Stones or the Beatles or something or, or uh, you know, the 50s rock and rollers, it's just, I don't know, it's just, it, it's just fun, you know. I, I think rock and roll is best is fun you know it's my girlfriend's a dancer she listens to a lot of jazz and i i love jazz and it's it's more interesting to me in some ways than rock and roll and the way those records were made and the great musicians and stuff but there's something about there's something about the, the two three minute rock and roll song that still i think you know not many people have improved on miss you know those first opening chords to mystery train or something it's just there's something magical about being able to just throw four chords together with a melody and just kind of like let your soul do something, you know? Yeah, that's what we're all after in life is to have fun and, and feel free. So where did you get your fashion sense from? Was it mom or dad or someone else? You know, I'm glad we're going off into other things other than just music because I think clothes have always been a big thing for me too because I grew up with my, my dad, uh, you know, like I said, before... 
before I discovered like uh, rock and roll and being, wanting to be able to play it, I was kind of, it was a very visual thing for me. So my dad, you know, had a strong Italian, like I said, Italian and even French kind of influence. We would always be watching. Uh, he was very much into Charlie Chaplin, very much into, uh, you know, Laurel and Hardy and those old silent films and also very much into Italian cinema. So he'd always, even as a kid, be talking to me and my brothers about Roberto Rossellini or Federico Fellini. And this was like, you know, I mean, when I, when I say I, I feel fortunate enough to have been spoiled with the arts, it's like, you know, a kid finding out about about uh, Lucchino Visconti or something and looking at these visual, you know, I watch, I watch things like Death in Venice now or I watch like La Dolce Vita now and I'm like, wow, I watched this when I was a kid and it's still as thrilling to me. But, you know, the way those people dress, the cafe society, the way they smoke their cigarettes, the way they, you know, wore their sunglasses, it's all, I think it's all subconsciously in some ways kind of influenced me and I, I just... I just like a lot of things from the past. You know, I generally like things that are old. I like fiddling around with typewriters and, and record players and you name it. You know, anything that I just, even just last couple of weeks, I got an old Leica camera because I just, I like the effort in things. Sure, I can, I can take a picture with my iPhone just like anyone else, but like the effort that it takes to learn how to, you know, put a film in a camera and, and the lighting and how to, you know, and I'm speaking to my photographer for friends now to just kind of give me a few lessons in, in lighting and just because I want to find out. I, don't, I have no aim to really, you know, want to become a professional photographer. But for me, it's just more interesting to, find, to buy some film, to load the camera, to take pictures of my girlfriend, to get the film developed. You know, it's the same thing with clothes for me. I, I always want to kind of like find some vintage fine because i know that it's some unique piece if you find a pair of shoes or you find a an old bag or you know an old like i recently got in the past year or so i really got into like vintage sportswear where i i hadn't for for a for a while and i started to kind of like just look at kind of wow you know beyond ball was really stylish rene lacoste was really stylish you know maradona had his own thing all of this kind of stuff so it's 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 a different thing, but it's all kind of part of the same parcel in a way. I think it's just I, I prefer you know I prefer finding vintage old things, and I love to have things made if I can afford it every now and again. I love to kind of like it's expensive, but I love to kind of like have some material, go to someone that can make a suit or whatever, you know. Yeah. Um, but it's just it's just more interesting for me. It's not it's not that I claim to know a great deal about it i just i just feel like it's more exciting and i noticed that you mentioned your love for cafe societies you've always had a sort of soft spot for the cafes of new york and the sounds of nashville and memphis now that you're based out of la i'm curious if it provides the same sort of creative space for your mind like new york or do you struggle to find it there it's funny because i just went for a, t- a tennis game here in echo park this morning i was walking back with my friend and we were talking about this very thing you know she's from LA I'm from I'm from London pretty much from England just outside of London you know so I grew up near one of the biggest cultural cities in the world and then you know spent most of my time there going to art school going to 
Paris and Rome and Europe first. And then obviously discovering New York is like, you know, New York's this kind of unique place that is like nowhere else in its energy. And I feel like that place in some ways, funnily enough, I, I almost feel like I vibed with New York, you know, over London. I felt like it kind of felt like home to me in a way. And I love the, the old streets and the cafes, like you say, um, it, they provide something different. And, and I'm still getting my head around it. I've been here five years pretty much. And I had been here a few times before and been to, um, I'd been to like, you know, I'd spent much more time in New York uh, a few years ago. I was always in New York, you know, going back and forth from London to New York. And LA was somewhere I just kind of came to play the odd show, spend a week, go to the beach, you know, like everyone else, enjoy the sunshine. And I never thought I would like really get my head around living here. It was, it was a kind of accident that I would kept bringing, you know, coming over to record, being in the studio. I came over one time when it was winter. I didn't really want to go back to New York for a bit. So, you know, the longer I kind of stayed here, I started to get my head around it. It took, it, it definitely is a city that takes a, a lot longer to get to to vibe with to get and used to the energy because New York's just you know it's just more immediate you get you know it's seductive you kind of you know you fall in love with that kind of especially if you've got your if you're it's a you know it's a visual um feast in a way and it's kind of like you know the shops the cafes the the art deco the architecture you know LA for me didn't have that immediate effect but after about a year of getting to know people and hanging out and just like finding out different neighborhoods and you know it's become a really interesting place for me really I'm finding out more and more about it every day maybe the novelty hasn't worn off yet you know I guess if I was born I said to my friend today if I was born in LA and brought up here you know it would probably been the opposite I'd have probably wanted to go and live in London or live in in Paris. So for me, for me, LA is a really, I'm still finding out exciting things about it, meeting different cultures, different people all the time. You know, I love walking around with my girlfriend, looking at architecture and, you know, going to certain dance things that she, obviously at the moment, we haven't been going anywhere, but I mean, I, I, I still think it's a great place. It's got great energy. It's, it's very different than the New York. If you want to go to the theater, as you know, you're, you kind of, have to drive around and discover these places. And um, it's uh, it's not on your doorstep, you know, like if you walk up certain streets in New York, it's kind of all, all there and you don't have to really search too much to find it. And the same in London, you know, if you're in the West, the East End, whatever, it's kind of, it's those places are more metropolitan and they're, you know, LA is just this big sprawl. And, but but I, I, I really feel like I've, I've met some great people here. I, I I love the energy. I'm finding out more about it all the time. I love the weather. You know, it's kind of there's there's obviously things I like about New York. Uh, I miss about New York and and London and you know it, those those places are always there. So, have you found a club in LA that compares to what's cooking in London? <laughs> what's cooking is a cool place. I I it's funny because what's cooking was one of these places in London run by Steve and Ali. Uh, it was one of these places that was kind of like a very unique thing because it was out Leightonstone in London, which, you know, nothing happens in Leightonstone. You could throw a brick somewhere and it wouldn't like hit anyone. You know, it's kind of like, it's, um, 
you know, it's one of those parts of London that's, I think, going towards Essex. It's kind of like out there on its own. I think famously Alfred Hitchcock is from there. So that's the only thing that kind of puts it on, on the map. But, um, you know, it's, it's nowhere near all the hustle and bustle of London and all the exciting West End and, and, you know, other clubs like the 100 Club, you know, right in Central. It was just this club that just happened to be that these, this couple started above a, an old pub in London, in Leytonstone. And I remember someone telling me about it going there for the first time and I was like this is out in the middle of nowhere and it was it was then it really into this Americana thing really in, it was it was a, a good example of how you know when when the British try something I guess like the Beatles try and rock and roll you know they came up with something else or the Stones um, you know it was just a couple I think that was coming to Texas a lot and going to Nashville a lot and they came, you know, they started this club which had kind of palm trees in it and had like velvet curtains and had plants everywhere. And it just, it was just a really cool, I don't know, I don't know what it's, what's up with it now, but it was, it was a really cool time for me because when I released my first record and I was pretty much playing with Billy Childish all the time, uh, you know, touring with him and going to Europe and going yeah, you know, pretty much any show I was playing at that point was supporting him on his, like, uh, you know, he had a London residency or two. Also, I think Holly Go Lightly, I played some shows with her. And then I signed to this label, Damaged Goods, which they were, Billy was on. He produced the first record. And mm-hmm. What's Cooking was, it was, a, it was that, it was just a round. And it was like, it just became this kind of like club that was unique. And Stephen Alley, I don't know, at one point, I think I must have been playing there two or three times a week, you know, probably every night that they had it on. But it was, um, yeah, I mean, of course, in America, there's, you know, they were very much trying to do an American thing in London. Um, I think it was very much like, more like one of those Texan clubs from Austin, Texas. So it doesn't quite compare with America. You know, you're on some rainy street in London, but uh, I mean, it, it was just very unique for, for, for that city, you know, but here, here there's many great places I think to play. I, you know, the cafes of New York, I tend to love cafes and I love theaters. I'm not a big fan of like, I'm not a big fan of the, the, the way, you know, music has gone to the, the festival and stuff. I grew up reading about, like, I would I would be reading about Billy Holiday in Carnegie Hall or something. It was exciting to me. So mm-hmm. I tend to love playing in theatres and I like, I love acoustic shows in cafes. I think that that kind of um, ambiance, if I have to use that word, is that's the kind of vibe I like, you know. And you once said, if I was a painter, I'd rather hang my paintings in a cafe than a gallery because that's where people see things. That's where they observe. And there's less of a gap between you and the audience in these late night cafes and intimate venues. Is this what draws you to them? The fact that the people who are there are there to listen and observe you? Yeah, exactly. I didn't know I said it quite as as eloquently, but if I did say it like that, it's exactly kind of... um, it's exactly what I think. And the more and more I get into like certain spiritual studies and everything, I think, you know, lessening the gap is the thing. You know, the, the thing I learned about like performing with Billy and stuff is that he, you know, he's a very cold underground figure. He's not like, doesn't have the 
I guess, the fame of someone like Bob Dylan or someone, you know, but it's kind of like still the, some of the most exciting shows I ever saw, you know, when I was at school, art college was going to see him, you know, and the audience almost like right there at the stage, almost on the stage, him right next to them. It's got like this, this energy. And, you, you know, if you, if you look at old pictures of the Beatles or you look at old pictures of Chuck Berry or Little Richard or Buddy Holly, they're, they're right there. And I, I, I'm pretty sure, you know, I don't know, but I'm pretty sure that if the question was asked to them, I'm sure the most exciting shows they played were, were like right in the, you know, small little clubs with the energy or the small little theatres where people were tearing up the seats or whatever, you know, it's just, I don't know, the, the, the gap between the thing that happened, I don't know when it happened, I guess, I guess it probably happened in the 60s for the first time, but these huge shows where the audience is like there in the stadium and the, you know, the singers like, like however far away from them and they're up on the stage and untouchable, it just kind of, it doesn't seem exciting to me, you know, and I, I hardly ever went to, any of those kind of shows. I mean, I remember going to a, I remember going to a Billy Childish show when I was at school, and I remember my sister was into things like U2 and all of that, and she bought me a ticket and took me to one of those big shows, and I was like, it just didn't, the energy didn't, I, I was like, this isn't, doesn't feel exciting to me. It feels like it's so detached, you know. And in a cafe, I, I, I totally agree with that. I think it's like, you know, you go in these Cold War galleries, and I do go in them because I love to see art. So if I'm in London or I'm in Paris or I'm in New York, I love to see, you know, Van Gogh or I like to see, um, I like to see uh, anything, you know, Michelangelo or something if I'm in Rome. But I, I love the idea of a cafe. I love, I love where you can almost reach out and touch something. And, I, I, and, you know, even reading about, like, cafe life and the poets writing in the cafes and the poets performing in the cafes and the, and the singer-songwriters in the cafes is, is kind of what wanted, made me want to go to Paris for the first time when I was in London or made me want to go to New York because I feel like in those two places, the society that's built around cafes is kind of like a really important thing and photographers hang, hung out there. And these, you know, I don't know, it just feels like... Um, when things get overly professional and in this kind of pseudo intellectual realm, I, I find it cold and detached and it, there doesn't seem life in it for me. Yeah. I bet sometimes you have to even go out of your way to fill that void on your own sometimes and seek out the old familiar bars and parks and cafes just to keep the romance alive. Yeah, exactly. You got, it's kind of like, a I don't know, people were, you know, I guess with the, with the, realm of whatever happened in the last century with the superstar and Elvis and Marilyn Monroe and this like obsession with celebrity it kind of like you know it, it put people at such a distance mm -hmm. that like you know sure I, I love some of those movies and I love I love the I love Marlon Brando and everything but it put people at such a distance that they weren't you know for me it's like you know it's people are approachable I love I love like I love old theater. I love Shakespeare. I love Laurence Olivier. I love all of that stuff. I love the, the early films that Pacino and De Niro made because they seem so much more like in it and close to everyone. Again, it feels like, I don't know, it just feels like really close to the earth. It feels like there's more substance there for me in a cafe or in a, in a theater than there is in any, um, I don't know, as a, as a performer and, a, and as a spectator. Whenever I've gone to one of these festival events you know 
in the way the music industry's gone. You know, in on, on both in both areas, as a performer, it feels like there's this kind of passing audience that doesn't pay that much attention. You know, always wondering what they're missing out on on the next stage. The sound is never that good. You know, it just feels like it's an area. I, you know, I understand that's you know. The industry goes where the money is. So these big events have a lot of money. That's where the agents go, you know, and they book you in these Coachella and Glastonbury and all this stuff. But for me, nothing is more exciting than a small little cafe or a really good theatre show. Or even like when you go to the see a classical piece in downtown LA or something, you see an opera. It's like, you know, the 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 the, the connection, you know, between the piece and the and the audience is the main thing. You know, and um, if it's disconnected or it's such a distance, I don't know how you can kind of contain that that kind of energy. Yeah, man, I'm sure you're really feeling those effects of that disconnection right now in quarantine. You got to be going nuts not being able to perform live and connect with people. Yeah, it's a little bit weird. You know, it does. You do. You do have your moments of, like you say, of of going nuts. It was definitely weird on me because, like, you know, I I'm a prolific writer and I, I want to release stuff all the time and for the past you know this was the only record I kind of made in bits of bobs my my earlier records I kind of made in you know a week or two in the studio do it have it finished get it out there this was like you know I lived in New York came to LA and, you know worked a little bit with Mitchell Froome worked a little bit with Linda you know d- different people and it, it kind of like you know, and then all of a sudden, you know, release something and then, you know, add, add finally setting up things with a booking agent here in America and connecting with a person I work with in London for Europe. And then, you know, talks of going to Australia or Japan, all that kind of stuff. And then, and then, <laughs> and then nothing, you know, but, but, you know, we have to kind of, I think there's, I also think there's a good thing about about it i know i know that sounds weird but there's like a i know i mean only from my perspective as a as an artist and a writer because i've been wanting to do other things so if anything my girlfriend's a dancer you know she she's a she's a dancer and a singer and a writer and she she does all of this stuff but i think she goes she you know she has her moments of frustration maybe a bit more than i do because she loves she loves performing she loves going to the dance clubs and and, and dancing and and I like performing too, but I think my realm is, you know, I love being in the studio. I love writing songs. And I lately, in the past few years, I've loved writing literature more than anything else. So I haven't produced a lot yet, but I really want to, you know, produce these plays I've written mainly and publish more literature. I, I published a little collection of uh, cafe poetry that I did called Cafe dell'Artista. And and that kind of made me feel like you know it's it's amazing the power uh, how powerful something holding something physical in your hand can be when it manifests and you've got it there and it's like wow I can you know holding your first book makes you just feel like right I'm going to go and finish this damn novel I'm working on and just see if I can adapt it for the screen you know all sorts of there's all sorts of areas with music even like I connected to some uh, indie film friends of mine that like you know, uh, talking to me about doing some score writing and stuff like that. It's not all about like getting out there and just playing shows kind of like, you know, I mean, it's, it's, there's, there's a, there's a great part to that and there's an exciting part, but there's also, I don't, I don't want to be that kind of musician forever. You know, it's, it is fun getting up, touring, playing stuff, but 
it's like, you know, there's all sorts of areas in the arts, in writing, in theatre, writing music for theatre, writing music for film that interests me a whole lot more than just kind of like touring 360 days of the year, you know. I'm glad you said you didn't want to be a musician forever like that in that sense, because Linda Perry once said, whenever she's feeling unhopeful about the state of music, she'll put on a Pete Molinari record and that you give her hope. And that when she looks to take someone onto her label, we are here. Her number one question is, why do you want to do this? And are you always going to play music? How did you or how would you answer that today? It's great the way she said that. And she's, she's right in a way. It's kind of like if you, I think what she means, I'll have to ask her, but I think what she means is like, you know, if you want to, if you want to do anything in the arts, you know, whether that is like pick up a chisel and become a sculptor or, or paint or whatever you've got to do it with your whole self i think is what she's saying is like if you you know if you're half asked about it or if you're just getting in it to be famous or or to be a you know a flash in the pan or something or to have an easy road you know there is no easy road really when you are choosing to be this what this thing called an artist which is you know somewhat of a pretentious word in itself but if you really understand what it is, it isn't always that pleasant. You know, people glamorize it and they overuse that word as if it's like something to do with celebrity. And quite often it has been something to do with celebrity. If you've been an actor, or you've been a, you've been a musician or you've been this, that or the other or a painter. But, but that doesn't mean to say it, it doesn't really. Being an artist is kind of a bit of a curse in some ways it's kind of like it 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 can control you you know in 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 ways that is beyond you and um you know it's i think what she means is like you know ask yourself why you want to do it it's it's like anything you know in some ways it's it's um but it isn't something like it there has to be a bit of a vocation in it. it can't be just like this like nine to five i'm going to do this and i'm gonna you know, have the house and the mortgage and the car and the, and this and that the other. It's gonna it's gonna be on your mind pretty much, you know, twenty four hours a day. And it's gonna it's not always gonna be pleasant. There's always with the arts. There's always a sense of conflict. You know, there's harmony too. And there's that's the great part about it is that you can express something in your spirit and your soul, and. Um, and you got a kind of, you know, that's, that's pretty much the sole reason, really. It's like if, you, if you're not expressing yourself, right, and, and then do something else because, it, you know, <laughs> what's the point? You're going to just torture yourself over, over these, um, you know, and you've got to ask yourself, like Linda says, why, why do you want to do it? If, it? if it is like I want, I want some success and I want to be talked about and I want this and that and the other, and it's, then it's all ego and it's just like you might as well go on one of these you know, celebrity TV shows and go for that. But if you really want to kind of like be the artist, you know, if you really want to be, you know, whether that is acting or whether that is music or whether that is, you know, writing plays or whatever, it, it, it's work. It's like, it's a, it's a constant kind of fire that burns you in a way. It's kind of like something that doesn't let up. And, um, and you know there's there's good things about that and there's uh it's it's just trying to find the balance but um it's not always it's not always a bed of roses you know i mean you've you've read about even the, you know our most famous examples with art when it comes to mozart and 
and Beethoven and these people we still speak about hundreds and hundreds of years later or Shakespeare or whatever. It's like, and we'll probably continue to speak about them for hundreds and hundreds of years because of what they created. And, you know, they didn't have it easy and they didn't earn a huge amount of money at it at the time. They just, you know, gave lessons and they, they composed this music. Most of them lived in squalor. You know, today I think everyone's a bit obsessed by kind of like the self. They're a bit obsessed by this like, like sense of importance, sense of like, you know, sense of uh, wanting to be something special rather than wanting to create something special. You know, it's nice that Linda said that. And it's nice, whenever I feel a bit kind of frustrated about stuff, obviously there's, there's spiritual practice. There's all these things we can do. And that is the, that's the major part of, of our lives, you know, is finding some other sense of being, which is not just, not just this, um, wanting to be you know our our identity and our personality and you know this is my name and this is what i do this is my this is my job choice and this is my career and you know i i i play you know football every day or whatever it's i like this kind of food there's there's stuff beyond that that is like far more you know important that we should find out about this sense of spirit and everything but i also I also think, you know, it's all interconnected, this mind, body, spirit thing, and all like, all has to work together. And if it doesn't work together, there's going to be some, you know, there's going to be some conflict somehow or another, and things are not going to, not going to be, not going to work in harmony, you know. So I I think you do have to ask yourself Mm -hmm. why you want to do it. And you also have to realize your talent is in the cho- is in your choices you know we i i i pick up books and read about you know d- painters and musicians and actors like Laurence Olivier or Maria Callas just because i i want to find out why they wanted to do it it's like why did this actor want to you know why did he act from when he was like 5 years old till almost like a week before he died when he was like 82 or something he was still on the stage still doing shakespeare still still in love with it, still obsessed by it, you know, still like you had this huge work ethic that, you know, is as important as this thing we call talent and skill and like, you know, and, you know, it's also complete determination and being able to be focused in what you're doing, you know, and, um, and just like, uh, and just, you know, bring out, bring out in you what's best, you know, a good, your collaborations are important because we can all have good collaborations and bad collaborations when it comes to, to uh, music or film or producers or directors. And, you know, sometimes you, you just like, like you've got these examples in the past of a, you know, film director working with these great actors and it worked out really well. And what a marvelous film that turned into. And, you know, same with records, but you know, it's all very important. And, and I think as much as the talent is in our, our little gifts of like being able to do stuff or sing or play the guitar or, or write a book or something is also in our choices. Like, mm-hmm. you know, being aware, being, you know, discerning what is going to be good for us, making the right choice, you know, what is going to, what is going to be the right stage to be, to, to, to be seen on, you know, and your label truly believes in you. How important is it for an artist to find a label that is actually a fan of them? It's it's really important. 
you know, today is a bit of a weird area because, you know, I'm sure it, it might be similar in some ways in the going in the past. You know, there was still these studios and, you know, old film lots and such and such and producers wanting the star and, you know, mm-hmm. wanting to mold Judy Garland into something or mold, you know, and then you got these non-conformists come along like Martin Brando that are rebellious and trying to break the system. And, you know, I think, I think who you're working with is really important. It's like you've got to find an environment to flourish in. You know, whether you are a great stage actor like Laurence Olivier, you are a Maria Carlos in the opera, or you are, you are, um, you know, Leonard Cohen or Bob Marley or something. It's got, you've got to find one, the right musicians. It's all, it's all in our choices. It's like the right musicians, the right producer, you know, and you've got, there's always going to be conflicts and you've always got to learn to stand up for yourself, even with the people you're working with, even with your management, even with your record label, with your producer, you know, um, it's really important to have people that believe in you and are not, are not just going to quit at the first hurdle. Um, you know, because there are a lot of people today that want, you know, this instant gratification. They want to throw something out there if it doesn't work in like two or three months. I think that's the one thing that's probably changed in the past. I think these, these record labels or, film companies they stuck with people a little bit more i think if it didn't work from the beginning there was a bit more of a sense of development and i think that's what probably linda was getting at is like she liked those old models with like you know we're not just going to give up on you there's like there should be some development you know there should be like some uh you know everything's changed in a way with the internet and it's kind of like people artists today i i think are and this is my own personal opinion, and I'm sure I'm not the only one, but I think what I don't like about it, you know, is that, you, you know, artists are, are kind of like required to almost like become PR people or promoters or, you know, they're required to become like their own manager in a way. It's like, sure, sure, you've got to think for yourself. You've got to be, learn how to do these things and, dress yourself and have a sense of style and all this kind of stuff and have your personality and try and project that. But, you know, the whole reason to collaborate with a record label or, or a, a record producer in the studio or a, or a film company or whatever it is you're doing, you know, a booking agent is, is to collaborate, you know, people's roles. I'll give you an example. I once was in a studio in London with a, with a mastering guy that was cutting a record on a vinyl. Uh, his name's Noel Som- Somerville. And he was like, had a vinyl on one of those old lathes. And he comes from the old school. You know, he was working in like Olympic and Abbey Road. These, these, old, these old school studios that were purpose built, you know, worked on tape and everything and vinyl, you know. And I was watching him like at a computer. So he was watching, he was looking at a screen making all of these changes, cutting this record on vinyl. And I just asked him this question. I said, like, no, like, you know, you must have had to learn this whole process because you come from the 60s where, like, people, you know, they recorded on tape and they, re- they cut onto vinyl. And he still does that. His studio, you know, still, he still deals with the analog side of it. But he had to learn how this whole digital process happened. Otherwise, he was going to be out of a job pretty quick. 
So he had to learn a whole different schooling, you know, how to do this, how to work in these different environments and spaces. And so I asked him the question, you know, I was like, you know, what is the difference? What do, what do you find so different from then till now? And I was kind of generally meaning, it was kind of a technical question. I was asking more about the analog digital thing, but his answer was way better. He, he answered this thing. He answered this question of mine really well. And it was like, told me more than what I was asking. And he, he said, Oh, in the back then, you know, he, he misunderstood what I was asking about. But he, the way he answered it was brilliant. He said, back then, people knew their roles really well. Mm. And I said, oh, what do you mean? He said, like, if you, were a, if you were an engineer, you were an engineer. If you were an artist, you came in the studio to sing and record. If you were a producer, you did that. If you, if you were the photographer, you did that. You know, he said, people are required, artists are required to wear too many hats today. And that's probably why you're not getting these like really prolific singer songwriters or playwrights or novelists as much as you were then, because artists should be allowed to like, all right, get in, you know, managers and, and, and record labels should be talking to, to their musicians and their artists they've signed about nothing other than their music. They should be asking them about their songs. Are you writing? Are you in the studio? We're going to work as a team to, help you out, you know, uh, agents should be talking to their actors, I'm sure, about bloody Shakespeare or Tennessee Williams or, or, um, or film techniques or whatever it is, or, you know, what they did, what Elia Kazan did or whatever. It's like now they're talking to them about social media and they're talking to them about like numbers and they're talking to them about being popular and, and posting and what they should do. And then all of a sudden, you've got a person going in the studio, you've got a person going to a film set completely unprepared, mm -hmm. you know, and that is what has changed. I think in this day and age that I, I think is to, is to a negative aspect for the arts. I, I think it's to the degradation of the arts in a way. I think the arts will not flourish if, if, if you're not gonna, if you're not gonna bring out the artist in a person. On originality, you said there's only so much you can do with a guitar and five chords and that it's the way a song is sung and the way it's expressed that makes it original. And you like to sing your heart out on stuff. But what does that mean to sing your heart out? I think to sing your heart out is a phrase, not just the singing. I think it's like a term, a term for the, you know, it's like, sure, there's techniques you can learn and there's there's certain things you can learn from any teacher, but eventually you've got to kind of have your own voice. You know, it's like Leonard Cohen. There's, there's an interview where he talks about this initially. He's like, you know, I knew I could write poetry and I knew I could like play the guitar, but I couldn't like, he said like when he discovered like Frederico Garcia Lorca or whatever, he was like, Oh wow. Now I, now I can find my own voice, you know? And it's like, I think every artist needs needs that sense of like um it's like you know the word artist in some ways is somewhat pretentious all of this stuff is like to you know even being a great actor you're pretending to be something you're kind of wearing a mask you're going on stage and you're performing um it's not it it, it it's there's a whole greater you I think and this is the this is the part that you're expressing or getting down on the page of your painting or something or you're writing a uh, a story or a poem or whatever 
but it's, I think singing your heart is just a sense of like, you know, sometimes you just have to let something go. You, you've been to your lessons, you've learned techniques, you've, you've, uh, you've gone to the opera school, you've gone to the film school, you've done all of these acting lessons, but sometimes you just got to kind of, you got to let your, your feelings run with hopefully a sense of technique, you know, in the sense of like skill and everything you've learned in the acting class or in the, in the studio or whatever, you know, it, it's going to help you a little bit when it comes to performance and getting on stage, but it's not going to, you know, you've got to bring yourself out and you've got to kind of put yourself into it, which you can't really learn from anyone else. You can't learn that from the great acting teacher or the great musician or the great, you know, whatever you've got, a, you've got a, you can only remain a student for so long. And, and it's like, sure, you keep, you keep learning in a ways we, we still keep reading the books and this, that, and the other, but sometimes you just got to kind of like, you got to look within yourself for what you have, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and bring yourself out. And, um, it's kind of like, I don't know. It's, I guess it's like Mozart or every kid. He's this kind of freakish kid. That's like five years old that can write this music. You know, sure. He's, you've got to have a teacher to discipline and all that stuff and bring out the best, but you know, no one can, no, no one could really teach him what he had. He already had it. It's, it can only just be developed. So, I think, um, you know, this, everyone's obsessed by this idea of originality today and like what is original and well, I mean, what is original? It's mm. kind of like, a, a, you, you see a flower grow, that, I guess that's original. <laughs> we want to be able to compare you to someone else because we don't know how to describe your style ourselves. It's true. And, and, the, and the, the thing is the comparisons and this sense of, the sense of comparison is, 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 is quite destructive in a way because it kind of like, I, I realize why people want to do it because journalists need to like, oh God, well, if I've been to seen him play and he's playing with a guitar and a harmonica, then like surely he's got to listen to Bob Dylan a lot or listen to Woody Guthrie a lot or listen to, you know, if someone's playing blues and they're wearing a pinstripe suit, then they've got to have loved Lead Belly. And we, you know, we, we get, an idea of what ballpark they're in and we can write about them but it's kind of like it's 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 not it's not a very kind of like progressive way because like comparison in some ways breeds imitation you know we were we were i was watching this thing by krishnamurti the other day where he's talking about this very thing it's like imitation is can be the worst thing and it's like to compare ourselves constantly compare ourselves with outside people or be compared all the time it's natural if you're a sports person you've come along and you've broke a record you know people are going to say wow he's like you know so and so this boxer is you know he's he's like shows a little bit of muhammad ali or something or he's like you know people want to mention other people because it shows a sense of knowledge and stuff but it's not it's not totally essential people just have their you know the only thing that's unique and original is what you have in your spirit yeah. You know, like I said, everyone's picked up a guitar. Everyone's written a song. You know, some have done it better than others. Obviously, you know, you go to Rome and you see the sculptor that, you know, made things out of marble 500 years ago or something, had something special that no one's been able to reproduce since. 
Um, but people do different things. I think, I think what's important is authenticity. You know, it's like, what is, or what's authentic in your soul? What is, is, you know, when Bob Dylan first came about, he didn't really know what he wanted to be. So he kind of like molded himself on Woody Guthrie. So his mm. first few albums were like, you know, he wore the plaid shirt even. He, you know, he, he even took pictures that way. He idolized someone. Even the Beatles, like, you know, worshipped the ground like Buddy Holly and Chuck Berry and all those guys. You know, it's kind of like, but eventually I think you become yourself through yourself. You've got this sense of self. And even though, you know, you might not be reinventing the wheel, it's like, you know, many people made music before Beethoven or Bach, but like maybe some didn't do it as quite as good and some might have not have done it anywhere near as good since. I don't know. But like they were being, I think, their authentic self. And I think, you know, it's just obvious that you're going to be compared to people from the past because mm -hmm. that's what people do. You know, you become, you're an actor today and people are going to say, well, wow, he's like a little bit like the next Robert De Niro or something. Or he's like, you know, you're you're a, you're a Shakespearean actor, and you're the next Lawrence Olivier. And it's, it's it's a bit stupid, really. It's it's there's there there isn't you know it doesn't have to be that kind of comparison all the time. I think people, it's it it, it I understand it, but it's kind of it, it it makes it really uncomfortable for the person that's trying to you know that's trying to progress in an area or trying to trying to flourish or trying to evolve because yeah. of these constant like the this this way of like being compared all the time you know but anyway it's the way of the world and i guess that's the way it is and you know it, it can, it's flattering when someone comes along and says you sound you know this is like you sound a little bit like hank williams or you sound a little bit like roy orbison or something it's like wow those guys were so great um i'm like humbled to be even compared in any way you know yeah rather than who influenced you i'd much rather know what influenced you or what influenced the yeah. song and what you were going through in your life at that moment yeah, I mean, like artists can influence you for sure. It's not, undoubtedly, if you were, if you were, you know, ten years old and you're listening to like, you know, you're just discovering music and you're listening to like Beethoven or something, you're gonna, it's gonna have a profound effect on you. Listening to that kind of, those kind of things that were created, or if you're studying dramatic arts or something, or you're a ballet dancer and you you watch this, you know, Russian dancer like Nuriev or something, it's going to have profound effect on you, especially at a young age, because you're like a sponge soaking things up. But, you know, that doesn't mean to say that other that people can't go forward and take what they've learned from others. And, you know, and, and there are other things that inspire us. Like I say, there are our environment, our family, our upbringing, you know, the fact that I might have been brought up in a rough town rather than in you know, Kensington in London or something. You know, my girlfriend's from Brazil. She's from a small island. My mum's from a small island called Malta. I think all of these things, you know, have a profound effect on us uh, as well as like just who we might have listened to mm -hmm. <laughs> or who we might have heard, you know, playing the guitar or something. It's kind of, you know, there are all of these other things that have a real um, effect on our development in some way, psychologically and, and physiologically and spiritually and all of these kind of different aspects of ourself, you know. And then, and then there's things way beyond the environment too, which are things you discover within, you know, if you, if you, if you dare to go within. <laughs> 
I know in your songwriting process, you like to figure out the melody and the title and then go from there. And you've been intrigued by titles since you were just a little kid. Why are titles so special to you? For me, I like the sense of a title just because I, th I feel it gives me some direction. It's like it's, it's something not just conceptual. It's just something like it gives me some direction to be able to know what I want to write about. And that, you know, I, I have had, I have had experiences where I have changed a title here and there, but generally I feel like if I've got something that's like a, a title that I generally feel like I'm, I've got a direction. I've got something, I've got like a compass. I've got, I know where I'm, I'm walking to a degree, even though there's a lot that might unfold with the content, yeah. as far as and change you know whether i'm whether it's this that and the other i don't know as a kid titles always gripped me you know superman spider-man and, and then when you get involved in plays and hamlet and macbeth and it's like these kind of archetypes they're archetypes aren't they it's like you know the merchant of venice damn i want to read that you know or or um you know um the grapes of wrath or or you know, you listen to a song like Tomorrow Never Knows or Strawberry Fields Forever or, you know, What Does That Mean or Strange Fruit. It just, it was always, even before I'd listened to the piece, you know, a lot of the time I'd be like really drawn in by what it was called. So tell me about Just Like Achilles. I'd sound really pretentious if I, if I, if I really gave you some, some dramatic kind of like, oh God, you know, it's just, this is, you know, this sums me up in a nutshell. Mm -hmm. I just I just thought it was a catchy title. I love old Greek plays. I love the archetype of Achilles. I think it's great. I grew up reading that stuff before I'd ever discovered music. Love love reading about like, you know, Zeus and Neptune and Odysseus and you know, just those names. Just yeah. the names of the characters are thrilling. You know, Sophocles, it's like, wow, what a name. I want to read about that. You know, Michelangelo, I want to read about him. What, what did he do? And I think Achilles is just like, you know, maybe I do like the archetype of this, like, you know, this powerful person that we all think we are a lot of the time that can just be undefeated, that obviously was just by so simply kind of like catching his heel is like mm. I think we all have that sense of like we all have that kind of thing in us that we can one minute conquer the world and one minute are so self-assured and one minute are so confident that we're going to be this and then in the very next breath we are crippled by doubt and we have this like complete unassured uh, notion of ourselves and you know one minute we can talk about heaven and hell and you know we understand this religious concept or um i'm you know in any great in any great you know artist or or a sports person or politician or whatever the you know the sense of like vulnerability or you know humility is where i think people find themselves most and I think I just get that kind of sense of Achilles was just like this person that is the archetype is like, you know, like powerful, unconquerable person that is like as this other side of himself that's completely like shrouded in doubt, you know. So I don't know. I guess if I was to give you that as a dramatic answer, that would be it. The more simple answer is just that I really love titles like a virtual landslide or walking off the map or just like Achilles or 
or you know uh, theosophy or something or another you know it's just like what rolls off the tongue but it, it i i do i do like that i do like what the image uh, i do like what the word conjures up as far as an image just like Achilles is so fucking good, man. I can't stop listening to No Ordinary Girl and Waiting for a Train and Steal the Night. And I understand you co-directed the videos for Waiting for a Train and Steal the Night on your new album. And Steal the Night is featuring Evan Rachel Wood, who plays Dolores in Westworld. How did you two become friends? Evan Rachel Wood uh, was introduced to me through Linda. Because the first time I met Linda, um, I was taken into a studio uh, to meet her and she kind of like, she'd heard a few, I was recording some songs with a really good producer, a guy called Mitchell Froome. He's an amazing arranger and everything. And, and she'd heard one of these songs that weren't quite finished. They were kind of like these arrangements of a song, like a, a bit further down the line in a demo and she'd heard it. She was like, you know, this is really great. She said to the person I was working with at the time, um, she said to him, you know, we're kind of starting this record label. We're, you know, she gave a brief idea, I think, about like the concept for a record label, which was to, you know, have a small roster of people where they would develop stuff. And, and she, I, I went to a studio over in Sherman Oaks and she, we chatted and she gave me a guitar and she put a guitar in my hand and said, sing a song sang a song she was like definitely want to work with you you know she was kind of really self-assured about it but she kind of like also was like uh, she was really into the image of stuff so she she uh, her first thought on that very first day i met her was um i want to make a i want to i want to do a little documentary film like a little kind of thing that sells you in a way I know you're making a studio album, but let's do a let's do a film about making an album. And I was like, cool. She said, because I like your image, the way you dress. You've got these, you know, friends of musician friends we can invite into the studio, and, you know. And it started off in her studio. The idea started off in her studio. <laughs> and the one thing I do like about Linda, you know, there's many things, uh, but like you know she she can run away with an idea you know within a day it went from let's do this little 15 minute thing in our studio to you know i think the next day it was like let's go to capital studios and let's talk to don was and let's kind of do this big like production and feature film almost and you know and she she was partnering then i met kerry brown later who was a partner in this label we are here and you know this was before I'd even signed to the label. She was already getting me in the studio. I'd done a recording session with her for mm -hmm. a couple of songs because I was working mainly with this guy, Bruce Wittkin, and I'd recorded all of this stuff. Uh, still working with Bruce, a great producer. But Linda had heard the stuff that I'd done with Bruce and done with Mitchell, and she loved it. And she said, all right, let's finish the record, do the studio thing, but let's also do this other thing in Capital, which would be you know, a visual feast. Let's kind of like, so she invited like Mike Garson and like Gail Ann Dorsey and, and uh, Damon Fox and kind of like these, you know, she had these gospel singers come in and all of these, you know, and in the beautiful like Capitol Studios, which is very iconic and very beautiful inside and, you know, huge studio and, Frank Sinatra, Mike, and all this kind of stuff. It was all, it was all, yeah. 
it was a real pleasure to be in there that day doing this stuff with these musicians. And her idea was, you know, you invite some of your friends and I'll invite some of mine. And Evan, uh, Jacob came along and Ronnie Spector, who was in the Ronettes in the 60s and worked with, you know, uh, she was with Phil Spector and all that stuff. And Evan was someone that she, uh, she had worked with and was a friend of hers. So she just sent out different songs to different people of mine and sent one to Jacob. And, um, and we tried a, a bunch of others there. You know, it's just timing, really. We had the studio date we were going in. Some people couldn't make it that we got in contact with. They were on tour or doing stuff. And Evan was just like, yeah, definitely want to come in. And she sang this song, uh, Absolute Zero, which is part of the, is, is, you know, there's my version on the record, I think, that they feature as, as part of the record. But also, Evan did a version of the song that day. Jacob did a version of uh, Waiting for a Train, you know, which is, they've kind of released. And then there's my version on the studio record. So just like Achilles is the studio record, and they've they've released little vignettes, little kind of clips uh, of the Capitol stuff. You can see it on YouTube and stuff. But I think there will eventually be, hopefully, you know, they'll release the whole thing because Ronnie Spector's involved in it. Evan does a great job of singing Absolute Zero. Uh, Jacob does a great job. Linda, you know, all the musicians involved. Mike Carson, who played piano with David Bowie since the beginning. Um, and uh, so Evan was brought in that way and then when I when it came down to filming a video for the first single with Kerry I think directed the first one uh, I you know co-direction might be a bit of a uh, a bit of a yeah, I wouldn't maybe use that phrase I think I always have a a direction you know I always like to work with the director you know uh, in 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 uh, in uh, Steal the Night really was Kerry Brown with the crew. And I guess I just styled everyone because I love to, I love to dress people up. And, you know, Evan came in, my friend, Nicole, the Liberté, who uh, is an actress too, has been in like the new Twin Peaks and a bunch of other things. Um, and I just, you know, I love to take a suitcase or two of, of clothes and just like have fun with it and just style it. It was just a simple studio video and Evan kind of like played backup singer pretty much. And then on the next one with Keon uh, Hideati, my friend uh, who directed the the video for Wait for a Train. Again, I just had this idea, you know, musician, you don't see his face. He observes, he sees the homeless. He is, you know, observed. Irving, he's got these for sale signs. It's like we feel like we've all become like a, you know, we're heading to be a number for sale. So I had this idea and I, did, I, I explained it to him. So, you know, he, he directed it really, but I just kind of like, I like to kind of move people a little bit and just like give them an idea and tell them how I want it. And then it becomes a little bit of a, I guess, a co-direction, but you know, I'm not necessarily, but I always think the director is really behind the camera, but in both those situations, I was in front of the camera. But yeah, did I, I definitely gave a sense of what I wanted as an end result, for sure. All right, Pete, I want to be respectful of your time. So just a few quick questions for you before we wrap up. What is your idea of a good time with friends? Is it conversation over tea or something else? A good time with friends for me is like always over food. <laughs> my, my, I grew up 
with every conversation being over food. The first play I ever wrote, which I haven't produced yet, and it would probably be the last one I produced because as you progress, you kind of like, you always like the last play. But the first one I wrote is at the banquet table. And it's, it's, it's like a family that meets around food. And in my household, it was always around food, you know, whether it was Italian food or it was breakfast, everyone would sit down. And I love that thing. You know, the thing I don't like so much about America and and England even, because in, England's become so influenced by America in a way, is that everyone is on the go and everyone is like working and they grab food and they grab like, you know, they, they grab a sandwich or they grab something and they're, they're eating while they're working. And if you go to France, you know, or you go to Italy, everyone stops to eat. You know, if you go to, to where my mom's from in Malta, everyone stops to eat you know even the builders on the street will get out their table and their tablecloth and their wine and so for me you know sure i love going to the cinema i love going to the theater whatever but for me a, a good time is always around food it's still the best thing to go to a restaurant order to make food and to cook me and my girlfriend both love love uh making food especially in this whole period of time that kind of like we've, we've learned more about making food than any other time. So, so that's, that's always the best time for me among friends is like to, to either cook food for, for someone or go and visit people that are kind of like, uh, you know, it's always, it always makes things more interesting. And then what do you care about now that you didn't really care about prior to quarantine? I, I feel like my family is in England. I miss them a lot. You know, this is somehow it's an illusion, but it's somehow in our minds has created this almost like even more distance in some ways, because when rules come about and people start to talk to you about not being allowed to travel and not be, you know, I was supposed to be in Europe touring and I would have seen more of them. And, you know, I guess um, I've learned that, I don't know, I, I, I can only hope that the more and more I learn about life, the more and more, humble it gets um the more and more the spaces uh between us get more and more few Mm -hmm. and the prejudices between us get more and more few and if there's anything i want to learn about every day regardless of like these accomplishments and records and albums and feats and you know feeling self-accomplished and stuff that has grown less and less important to me than these, you know, the simple moments you would spend with your family. And it's true. It's kind of like, sure, you might have, I might have been on, got to, to be on an important stage and gone up on Carnegie Hall or something and it feel amazing or, or um, publishing a book or making a record. But it's funny how that when you're, you have some distance between you and the ones you love, you know, those things become way more important to you than than ever they become actually they're at the forefront of your mind more than this so-called great accomplishment of being in a film or or doing this or being written about in a magazine or all of these things that we kind of desire and want they become they have become less important to me sure i want to continue making the art because i love doing it but i think i think um what i've learned is that like the these uh the the sense of the simple things are far more substantial to me than anything else. That's right, man. And if you'd be so kind as to share what's on your shelf, are you reading anything good right now? 
I'm always like trying to work on a play and work on a book and work on songs. I like to work on them all together. And I, I finished something and then I, I read a book um, a while ago called Greek Fire, which is about the relationship between Aristotle Onassis and Maria Callas, who's one of my favorite artists and favorite singers. And I thought it'd be interesting to write a play, you know, based upon, uh, more upon him, actually. He's the one in the relationship that everyone loathes because she seems to be, be the victim that everyone feels sorry for. And I love her music and everything, but you know, there's always two sides to every story. And I, I thought, I want to write something about that relationship, a kind of play, but more from more from his perspective, seeing as he's vilified a lot and he's like this rich businessman, just an interesting character. And he is, he's, he's, he's chastised over many things because of his, his um, decadence and richness and everything. And, 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 and obviously that relationship and how he went on to marry Jackie Kennedy and leave her. So I thought, you know what, I want to research that book again, if I'm going to write about this person, so I'm reading that for the second time. It's called Greek Fire. It's, it's a bit of a controversial book because all the people that love Maria Carlos, you know, they, they don't like that book, you know, and I'm supposed to not like it either. But I wanna, I've wanted to study it again. And just before then, I read, um, I read a book about Laurence Olivier, which was really good. And, you know, it went into, again, about his whole work ethic and how he did all of these Shakespearean things and everything. That was, that was amazing. I'm always kind of like, opening little books though and reading little passages from something even if i'm reading one book all the way through well thank you for sharing that and then last question if you could have a drink with anyone in history who would you choose and why on a very humble note i'd probably want to sit down with my mom or something because i've been away from them for so long and my dad and you know they have a number of stories to share like mm -hmm. uh about certain things that are far more interesting to me than a lot of things you know, my dad talks about growing up in the war in Egypt and my mom in Malta and, you know, this, that and the other. But I guess if you're talking about a, a historic figure, there, there are many artists I could go into. But I've been, you know, I, I have a lot of spiritual practice. I grew up a Christian, even though I kind of like started to study a lot of Eastern philosophy and learn about Buddha. And I still love the words of Christ and I love Hindu texts and Krishna and all that stuff. But there's a teacher called Krishnamurti that taught here, like he died in 1986 and he taught here for a number of years at Ojai in California. And he was a young kid that was found in India that kind of lived a long, pretty healthy life. And just, you know, he's the only teacher I really like from this century, you know, this era, should I call it, that's kind of, and the, his teachings are not only profound, but the very thing that he, di he, he differs from a lot of other people is he didn't like the word teacher. He didn't like the word guru. He didn't believe that any of these, you know, he didn't believe in the speaker giving the audience the answer. He very much believed in like, like you're the answer. It's within you. Like we're going through this together. I think, you know, there's, that's the one thing I like about, you know, him, you know, it's not, not that he ever has, the answers which gurus are supposed to have. He, he thought that that was a lot of nonsense. He just always talked about, um, you have to inquire, you have to come up with the answer. You have to find out about your misery. You have to find out about your suffering. You have to go in yourself. And if I, if I, I guess if, you know, beyond all the 
famous, you know, beyond all the great musicians like Beethoven or Leonardo da Vinci as an artist or something, I would have loved to have met and many other people. I guess he would be someone I would, I think would be just someone amazing to talk to, Krishnamurti. I have his book, The Book of Life, next to my bed as we speak. That is a beautiful answer, Pete. You have that book. That's amazing. So great. And uh, yeah, the first one I read was Freedom from the Known, and I read The Book of Life. And, uh, I'm, glad, I'm glad that you're aware of who I'm speaking about. And uh, yeah, it's been really great speaking to you. And you sound, you ever, has anyone ever told you you sound a little bit, we haven't met you and I yet, hopefully one day we'll get to say hello, but you, you have a similar tone in your voice as like Muhammad Ali. <laughs> I've never been told that, but that's a huge compliment. Yeah, you have like, he has this like deep kind of like, anyway. Well, I hope we can get together in real life someday too. And I share the same feeling as Linda Perry when I listen to your music and watch you perform and that you are the real deal. So count me as a fan. I'll have links to Just Like Achilles and all your other records in the show notes. Your website is PeteMolinari.com. You're on social at Pete Molinari. Where else do you want people to go to find you and connect with you? Yeah, any of those, uh, any of those things. I guess I'm not you know, there's all those pages. I'm not the best at it, uh, but you can find us on all those things. And and just, you know, like I say, let's let's keep the physical thing alive and get there are vinyl records out there. There are books out there. Hopefully, I'm going to be publishing more literature. And you know, just like Achilles, will be released uh, physically on vinyl when we get through all of this, and there'll be touring and everything. But um, but thanks for thanks for um, a really interesting uh, chat and uh, for asking me to be a part of your show and everything and um, yeah hope to hope to connect sometime in the future. Thank you so much for doing this, Pete. This was a lot of fun. Thanks, man. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. Be sure to follow me on social media at Primalosophy, and if you want to subscribe to my weekly newsletter Sunday Goods, you can find the link in the show notes. Shakoba.